morning. My name is Merle and I'm an elder here at First B. This morning we'll be reading from Psalm 8, 1 through 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. All sheep, or you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the, breasts, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You may be seated. So we're in Psalm 8 this morning, as Merle mentioned. And uh, actually, this is our last Sunday in the Psalms. It's been a really good summer. Um, next week, we start up 1 Corinthians, and we're in that until Jesus returns, I think. Um, like, no, actually, genuinely, we were looking at the schedule, and I think it goes through like February of 2025 or something like that. But we're going to specifically take it really slow, I mean, three, four, five verses at a time, because there's so much in there in 1 Corinthians. It's basically the owner's manual of a church. It's how do you deal with problems in a church when they arise? How do you be like Christ? How do you take all that Jesus did in, in Matthew through John, and then all that Jesus did through the fledgling church in Acts, and then the theology of Romans, and then 1 Corinthians, boom. Instantly, problems, how do we deal with all of that information? 1 Corinthians is the first place we go. So I'm really excited to, to go there. But today, we are in Psalm 8, wrapping up our summer in the Psalms. So when you go to apply for a job, uh, obviously you try to present your best attributes and your greatest strengths, your best traits, in order to impress the employer and plus impress the interviewer and try to gain the upper hand on the other applicants. And uh, of course, those things need to relate to the job, right? So you bolster your resume with the most important things or the most impressive things about you or, or the things you think may offer the best value to the company. You want to be more hireable, more desi desirable, have a better ROI for the company than the other applicants. So if you write a resume, you don't exactly put on it, can open an email, <laughs> can type in the email can press send on the email. I can, I can lift over five pounds. Uh, I can run a 14-minute mile. Um, dude, this is a construction job. Why are you putting that on your resume? Right? That'd be ridiculous to put that kind of thing on your resume. That doesn't put you anywhere above anyone else, and it doesn't even apply to the job you're applying for. Well, Psalm 8 is kind of like that for God. It's this kind of silly, weird, unexpected resume, if you will, about God. Uh, David wrote Psalm 8, and the structure of it, you'll notice the first verse and the last verse, verses 1 and 9, are identical. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And when you see that specifically in Hebrew poetry, those are brackets, and that means that whatever is pointing inward, whatever is in between these two brackets, is the reason why the first verse and the last verse are true. And so we're looking, what does it say? How majestic is your name in all the earth? And at the end, the same thing, how majestic is your name in all the earth? 
So what makes God majestic and what makes his name mighty? What makes his name noble? What makes his name dignified, powerful over all the earth? Whatever it is, it's in the middle of this psalm here. And David wants to convince you that God is worth your worship, that he is full of majesty, that he is mighty, that he is worth glorifying for some really unexpected reasons when we start reading. So there's two reasons in this psalm that we're going to look at today that God is worth your worship. And they are unexpected and maybe a little bit strange. Number one, God is worth your worship. He cares for lowly you. Let's start reading Psalm 8. Um, I'm just going to go from the beginning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Okay, so that's kind of expected. He made all the stars. He created the entire universe. Look up, look down, look everywhere. His hand produced all of that. Okay, so far so good. Verse 2, out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Okay, so now we start to get to the unexpected. What do you mean out of the mouths of babies and infants? What, what are you talking about, God? Well, on one level he's saying that God is so great that even helpless babies can defeat his enemies. Do you have any examples of that in scripture? We actually have a lot. One of them is, is Moses. Remember the story of Moses. He's born in Egypt around the time that Pharaoh had an edict to murder all of the males who were born to Hebrew women. And so he gets placed in a basket and he gets hidden among the reeds in the Nile River. And then he gets found by the daughter of Pharaoh, gets adopted basically, and infiltrates the house of the enemy essentially, growing up in the household, learning their customs, their language, learning how to walk like them, talk like them, think like them, eat like them, fully accustomed to everything about essentially, I mean, the enemy of the Hebrews, the enslavers. Did Moses do anything in that? No, he was born, he got plopped in a basket. I mean, a ridiculous number of circumstances, and yet later God uses him to overthrow Egypt and carry his people out across the Red Sea, and Moses does a, a ton of amazing miracles, crossing the Red Sea, um, water out of a rock, and all these things that God, of course, it's God using him, but he uses this baby who had, what, a 2% chance of living, honestly? I mean, the, the statistics on that are ridiculous. So this is actually not even that uncommon, but it's maybe not the first thing we think of when we think of God being so great. Why doesn't he just use his power? Why doesn't he just use his might? Why doesn't he just stamp out the devil like a little bug that he is? We'll get to that. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So the splendor of creation is amazing, and we look at all that he has created, the complexity of the cell, the, the massiveness of stars and planets. And the reality is, he made all of this stuff for us to enjoy it. And he didn't have to do that. I mean, he made us a little bit lower than the angels. He made us out of dust, and we are finite. We have a start date and an end date. That wasn't intentional. It's a part of the fall. But he knew that was going to happen, and yet he still created the entire world, not just so that he could enjoy it, and I think he does, but he, ma he made taste. He made food taste good. He made colors. He made sounds that are pleasing to the ear, music. He, he made reproduction feel good. He didn't have to do that. There is so much in life that he 
blessed and said, you know what, I'm going to make it so that you have the ability to experience all of these things that I have created. And, I, and I'm going to bless you in all of these ways so that you can not just exist for my glory, but you can enjoy my glory. That being in the place where I am and, and being with me, being in my presence, being in my creation is actually satisfying. It's not just ho-hum or whatever. It's actually the most perfect place we could possibly be. Continue on in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This outlines something that I think is really important about the way we view ourselves, not just as Christians, but actually as humans. Every human has this element in them, created into them. And uh, there's this phrase that I want to pawn off on you, I think is really important. And it's, it's four little sections to it. You are, according to this and according to stuff in Exodus and Genesis and all throughout the creation narrative, you are a blessable, image-bearing, royal covenant partner. I'll explain those four things. Blessable, image-bearing, royal covenant partner. Blessable. Like I said before, the fact that we actually get to experience everything that God does. We're not just blobs out floating into space, just glorifying God because we're supposed to or because he created us to, but we are, we're finite. We are limited. And that means that we don't have the ability to provide everything on our own. We're reliant on somebody to provide something to us in order for our survival, our pleasure, our satisfaction, all of that. And so God gets to be our provider. He created us. So we are blessable. He is able to bestow things upon us that we can receive with joy. Second thing is image bearing. It says in the end of verse five, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Remember, we are dustlings. We are made out of the dirt of the earth that already existed, along with, of course, the breath of God and the breath of life. But there's a lot about humans that's kind of gross and really not that impressive if you think about it, especially when you look at the rest of creation. And yet what we have that nothing else have, not the most amazing star, not the most complex animal, not the most tallest tree, none of those have the image of God. And that's many different things. That's uh, relational intimacy with others. It's the ability to um, be self-aware, to, to actually realize that you exist, um, to have a purpose beyond just survival. There's all these different reasons and these things that point to the fact that in Genesis 1 and 2, God said, I want to create them in my image. They are going to be capable of thought, capable of praise, capable of thinking and, and creating out of nothing. I mean, it blows my mind the fact that God gave us the power to create life like, and, and create eternal life. Because our souls are eternal. Like he gave us the ability to create eternal life in children. At that, I would be so hesitant to give anybody that kind of power. And yet he did freely and with purpose. And that was his first call. Go, be fruitful, multiply, bless the earth with this ability to create eternal life. It's amazing. The third thing, blessable, image-bearing, royal he says, you've crowned him with glory and honor and you've given him dominion. So we have this ability to partner with God. Um, in, let me get to it. 
It says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, but you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And so what we have is this royal mandate, if you will, to take on God's uh, authority. He says, go, be fruitful, bless the earth, multiply, fill, subdue, take all of the raw materials and make nations, make culture, make iPhones, make whatever you want out of all of these base materials. I want to see what you can do and fight back the darkness. We'll get to it later, but if you remember, there's already spiritual warfare going on before humans ever enter the scene. Satan had already fallen from heaven and taken some angels with him, and there was a cosmic conflict going on before humans ever entered the scene. And so Eden is actually an outpost on earth to start spreading the gospel, spreading the good news, bringing the light into the darkness and reclaiming creation for God. And in that, we are covenant partners. It's the fourth thing, blessable, image-bearing, royal covenant partners partners. It's something we're doing alongside God and in covenant with him, in relationship with him. He makes promises to us. We make promises to him and we do this thing together. And what's so amazing about all of this is that we see that God is most glorified in the lesser overcoming the greater. And that doesn't make any sense to most of us, honestly. You would think if you have power, use it, right? If you have the authority, just, just use it. Why in the world do you choose to do things this way, the lesser overcoming the greater? There's a couple reasons. Everybody loves an underdog story, right? Have you guys seen uh, Top Gun Maverick, the new Top Gun? Oh my goodness. Such a good movie. I've already seen it twice. Just researching for this sermon, I was like, I gotta watch it again afterwards. <laughs> First of all, I'm an airplane nut, and you know, it's just, oh, it's so cool. Um, but it actually, I'm not alone in this, because it surpassed the Titanic as the seventh largest box office opening movie in U.S. history. Everybody loves it. And why? I think it's because we all identify with that underdog feeling a little bit. I mean, if you look at the story just builds up, it's an unlikely scenario. It's a rogue pilot who nobody really wants anymore. He doesn't follow the rules. And it's a bunch of, you know, pilots who are really good, but they're really young and they're really cocky. And we got to get them to fly through terrain that's almost impossible at crazy speeds. And there's missiles and there's jets. And you got to go up over this thing and flip oh, 10 Gs and all of this. And as, as it's building, you're just like, how in the world are they going to pull it off? There's no way. There's just no way. I'm not going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. Go see it. <laughs> but it's also framed in this light of, of good versus evil often. Often the underdog is the good guy. And the one they're trying to overcome, there's some sense of evil or injustice or something that's not right with the world. But I think it's more than just because we identify with being the underdog. I think there's an element of imago Dei, the image of God within us, that we have this intrinsic understanding that that's actually how God works. That, that that's actually how God chooses to reign and rule and conquer in the universe. It's not by might, it's by the little guy. He is for the little guy. And one of the biggest reasons I think why God works this way we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's a little preview of what's to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 20 through 21, and then skipping to 26. Where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That's a loaded sentence. We're not going to dive all into that. We'll do that in a few weeks. But for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So it wasn't the smartest guy who found God. It wasn't the wisest guy who figured out God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, which is Christ crucified, to save those who believe. Skip to verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Remember, they were mostly fishermen and tax collectors and other deplorables and lowly people. Verse 27. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, listen, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, so that no blessable image-bearing royal covenant partner may say, I did this without God. I had a plan, I executed it, and I didn't need him. You see, pride is the enemy of God's work and God's will. Pride steals God's glory. Now, is God insecure? No, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need anybody to justify himself. He is perfectly complete, perfectly whole, in himself, in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he knows that pride always leads to destruction of creation and destruction of relationship. There's an example in Isaiah chapter 14. I referenced this just a little bit ago. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. I don't know that it's going to be on the screen. <clears throat> How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. By the way, this is talking about Satan, Lucifer, the angel of light. He was called the shining one. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is an account by the prophet Isaiah of the moment when Satan fell from heaven. When Satan decided that he wanted to be God instead of God. When he decided that he wanted to use his own shining brilliance to outshine God. And he was and is beautiful and powerful. He, I think he was one of the worship leaders, basically. So he was like me, but like way, way cooler and way, way better than I am. And he thinks, you know what? This God guy, I mean, it's fine. He does some stuff okay. I got some better ideas. And I am pretty awesome. Do you see that solo I just pulled off in the last song? I think I could do this better than God. And so the relationship between God and Satan and angels that followed him was destroyed. That's kind of a weird thing to think about, isn't it? Satan used to worship God. God used to look upon Satan with, with joy, with privilege, with, with, with uh, pleasure. He used to be pleased by the things that came out of the father of lies mouth. And that relationship was destroyed 
we know that he hates evil. We know that God hates evil and wants to see Satan punished and will eventually. But, the, but it, just, it just struck me that God's heart is broken because Satan is no longer in relationship with God as well. We are designed to need God, not because he wants control over us. That's never why he created any of this. It's because he wants relationship with us. And the problem is if we thought we could do it on our own, we would abandon God every time. My uh, two-year-old daughter, Sophie, is uh, obsessed with yogurt right now. It's like the first word out of her mouth comes down the stairs. Good morning, Sophie. Ogurt. Good morning. Yogurt. <laughs> Every time I walk to the fridge, whether it's making breakfast, lunch, or dinner, Dad, I want yogurt, yogurt. <sighs> so I grab her a yogurt tube, you know, little go-gurts, and I used to just rip them off and give them to her, and she'd be happy, but I started to rip one off a couple weeks ago, and she goes, ah, myself. Okay, fine. Good luck. So I hand her the tube. <clears throat> I can't do it. <laughs> Straight back to me. Oh, yeah, what you think about that, huh? Not so independent, are you? But we, let, we long for independence. It's built into us. Part of it's good. Part of it's sin nature. We'll let you flesh out which is which, depending on the situation. But we love self-sufficiency. We love that idea that I don't need you, and I can control you. But even if you do love the Lord, but you start to take credit for the things that he's doing in your life, or in the lives around you, because of that sinful nature, because of that fallenness, even if you are saved and you are redeemed, we're still wrestling that battle against flesh and blood within ourselves. When you try to take control of God's plans, when you go, oh God, I, th I think I know what you're doing. I know what you're up to. Okay, I, I see you. I love doing this. Man, I've done this most of my life. Oh God, step one, I'm going to run 10 steps. I see exactly what you're doing and I'm going to do it my own way. The problem is when you do that, inevitably, it messes things up because it starts getting intermingled, God's will with your sinful agenda. And one of the unfortunate byproducts we see in Scripture a lot is that blessable, image-bearing, royal covenant partners that God so deeply loves end up suffering as a result of our need to try to control and be self-sufficient. There's collateral damage. Uh, in Matthew chapter 21, turn with me there. Starting in verse 12. This is a story of, of Jesus cleansing the temple. Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So he quotes Psalm 8 to the Pharisees. First of all, have you never read? They memorized Psalm 8. They memorized the entire Torah. Of course they knew Psalm 8. That's offensive in its own right. And he doesn't finish the verse, if you notice. Out of the, nursing in, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. 
because of the enemies, in order to defeat the enemies. He doesn't finish the sentence because he's letting them finish the sentence for him. He's calling them the enemies of God. And they're indignant at this. They look at what Jesus is doing, breaking down their system. They are indignant. That's a, that's a rage. That it's a defense mechanism when pride is under attack because it's not rooted in godly righteousness. They see the good. I think even the wording that Matthew writes here is fantastic. The priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and they were mad at wonderful things. You know something's wrong. You know something is not right in their head. Their religion had no room for broken people. It had no room for messy people. It didn't have room for children who didn't have things figured out. But here's the reality is that God doesn't care about how his church looks. He doesn't care about how you look when you show up today. He just wants the church full of people that know they need him and full of people that want to be blessable, image-bearing, royal covenant partners that recognize that that's how God made them to be and say, yes, Lord, I want to be that and I'm going to let you shape me into that kind of person to do your will in your way. If you try to be Lord of your own life, or even if you try to do a little too much to assist the Lord, stepping ahead of his plans, thinking you know how he thinks, even in well-meaning ways, we've all done it, you actually partner with the enemies of God. If you remember, uh, Jesus is uh, telling his disciples that it's about at the end of his journey away from Jerusalem and he's turning and setting his face toward Jerusalem and he tells his disciples that he's going to go there and he's going to die on a cross. And Peter tells him, heaven forbid, no way. You're not going to go die on a cross. I am not going to let you. You are going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. You're going to conquer the Romans, right? What does Jesus tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Was Peter Satan? No. He was the first disciple to declare Jesus is Lord. He was the first of the 12 that was following, maybe the first of anybody, besides maybe Anna, uh, Ananias, no, what were their names? Anna the prophet, Samuel, a couple others, that Jesus is Lord. This is the Messiah. This is the one we have been waiting for. So how can somebody have both of those things happen? One minute be the first guy that recognizes Jesus as Lord and the next moment have Jesus look at him and go, get behind me, Satan. It's because Peter had a little bit of Jewish pride in him. He had a little bit, little bit of a, oh, this is the guy. It's my generation. Jesus, he's, he's here. I get to be the, the, the right-hand man to the guy who's going to sit on the throne. I don't know if that makes me the cupbearer or the, or the liaison. I'm not sure what it's going to mean, but, but it means that probably good stuff for me, right? If he dies, there's no good stuff for me. If he dies on a cross and is buried, the Romans win, and I go back to my terrible fishing job. I thought I had something going here with Jesus. I was the, I was the guy that, that loved him. I mean, Peter, James, and John were the, were the three tightest he was right in there, in the ring for the right-hand man of Jesus on the throne in Jerusalem, kicking Roman butt. And he was ready for that. That wasn't Jesus' plan. And Peter's pride causes him to partner with the devil in telling Jesus, this is the way I think you should do things. This is the way I think you should save the world. 
The reality is that God's heart is for the lowly and the needy. And for whatever crazy reason, there's a few we've gone through, but there's way more. He is more glorified by a Samaritan carrying for a beaten man on the side of the road, left for dead, than by a priest passing by to get to church on time. He is more glorified by you visiting the widow and the orphan, the homeless guy in Hawthorne Park, than building megachurches or having an Instagram-worthy devotional. God is worth your worship because he cares for the lowly. And if you understand yourself and the reality of scripture, you are among the lowly. The second reason God is worth your worship is because he became lowly for you. You know how hindsight always tends to reveal deeper meaning? They say it's 2020. You look back and go, oh, okay, I see. Probably the best story of that that I have is uh, in college, I went to... Uh, college to be a mechanical engineer. Failed calculus, failed the classes. I ended up switching majors five times, got a biblical studies degree because it was the only thing that wasn't going to take me six years to get out of college with. So I thought, okay, stop accruing debt, go work at Costco or McDonald's or something and figure my life out, I guess. So because of that extra, you know, all those major changes and failing classes and everything, I had to go one extra semester. So I've got four years, all my friends graduate, I'm a total failure, watching them all walk down and I'm not doing it. But I've got this basically useless summer, you know, I can't go get a, a full-time job because I'm going to have to leave it in three months to go back for one more semester. So I end up working at a summer camp that's near uh, Newburgh, and there I meet my bride, who I have now been married to for 10 years as of Friday. And, and if you would have told me before I went to college, by the way, the degree you're really excited about to go uh, do, you're going to fail. You're going to switch majors five times. You're going to have a complete existential crisis. You're going to walk out of the engineering building, talking to the advisor, realizing you're done with engineering, look up at the sky and go, Lord, literally what, what, what is next? I genuinely don't know. I had a plan. It is completely in shambles. What now? Would you have, would I have said, sure, God, yeah, I'll do that plan. I like that plan. No way. No way. Now I look back. Praise the Lord, I suck at calculus. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I was waffling all over the place and couldn't figure out my major, my calling, what I wanted to do with my life. Because I wouldn't be here. I would not have married Megan, who grew up here. I would not have moved back down, down to the Rogue Valley. I would not have gotten this job here. I wouldn't be preaching this sermon to you right now if I had my way. Praise the Lord. And Psalm 8 is kind of like that as well, because it has this deeper meaning and this secondary meaning uh, that nobody would have understood until post-resurrection. I think the Holy Spirit wrote it in there. I think it was intended by the Spirit. But we don't see it until the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 shows us that Psalm 8 is not just talking about humans. It's not just talking about that we're a little, little lower than the angels and all this other stuff and reasons that we glorify God. It is also talking about Jesus. So we'll go to Hebrews 2, verse, uh, starting in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere which, by the way, is one of the best verses in all of Scripture. You do not have to memorize exactly where it is. Just know what it says. If the guy in the Bible can write, it has been testified somewhere, didn't bother to go look up the reference, you're good. It has been testified somewhere 
And here's Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, okay, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Little do we know, or anybody knows, until we get to Hebrews, verses uh, 5 through 8 of Psalm 8 are the entire story of Jesus' life and ministry and the reason he came down. Verse 7, you made him a little while lower than the angels. He came as a baby, born to, born to a virgin in a nothing town. He had to flee from the king who was going to kill him if he didn't get out of there. He had to go grow up in Egypt for a while. He was helpless, a little child, for a long time. Verse 7b, you have crowned him with glory and honor. But it's not because he's king of the universe. He isn't king of the universe yet. He hasn't died for your sins. He's the king incumbent. He's the Messiah to be. But until the Holy Spirit falls on him at the baptism of John, he's, he's the hopeful Messiah. Then he becomes the Messiah. That's a big rabbit trail we're not going to go down. Just trust me on that. <laughs> but why is he crowned with glory and honor? It's because of his humble sacrifice. It says in verse 9, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It's not because he healed people. It's not because he preached the gospel. It's not because of any other good thing he did in his life. It's because of the suffering of death so that he might taste death instead of you. And verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That is in progress. That's where we get to get involved as blessable image-bearing royal covenant partners. Through the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of the church today, we get to see all things be put under subjection. Excuse me. Everything in subjection under his feet. It's not by conquering means. It's not by Jesus coming down and kicking down the doors and kicking out the Romans. It's by humble service. It's by reaching down to the lowly, becoming lowly himself, that we might be saved. Philippians 2 has a really good summary of this what Jesus really did for us. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. I don't think it'll be up on the screen. A lot of last second ads. Sorry, guys. Not really sorry, but... Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's to be clung to, to be held to selfishly. He is God. But he did not count the power, the majesty, the honor, all of that stuff as worth holding on to and clinging to for his own selfish reasons. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Psalm 8 is a prophetic proclamation that God is majestic because of his sacrificial love in becoming lowly and limited in order to serve 
you. And not just lowly, he became the lowest. There is nobody that has stooped lower than Jesus. Deuteronomy 21, in the Mosaic law, there's a verse that says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. There is no lower or more humiliating place for a human to be than hanging on a cross. That's according to God's word. According to God's word, there is no more humiliating place to be for a human than hanging on a cross. And yet Jesus went willingly when you don't have to. I have to think that was possibly in Peter's mind when he was rebuking Jesus. You're going to go die on a cross? That means you're cursed. That means you're not the Messiah. According to Deuteronomy 21, dude, have you read your Bible? Jesus goes, that's not how I work. I do things by stooping down. I save the lowly by becoming lower than them in order to lift them up. As God is worth your worship, he cares for the lowly. And if you're honest, that's you. And he became lowly for you in order to lift you up. I want to give you a couple thoughts to wrap up our morning. Uh, when Jesus quotes Psalm 8 to the Pharisees back in Matthew 21, after he cleanses the temple, he actually uses the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which has this really key word change. I don't know if you saw it, but when he says, um, verse 2, he says, Out of mouths and infants of nursing babies, you have prepared praise. In Psalms, in the Hebrew translation, which is what we see here, it says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. So what is the difference here between strength and praise? Why is there a change? And why does Jesus choose that? I think he chooses that translation, which they would have had, very, very specifically. Because if you look just a few verses before the cleansing of the temple, it's called the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday, you know, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and everybody is shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. But how does he come in? Is he on a valiant steed? No, he's on a donkey, a dirty pack mule. And who's praising him? Is it the, the Roman legions and armored guards with their swords and their spears out and he's walking under him? No, it's peasants. It's, it's beggars with dirty cloaks laid down, not a red carpet, and palm fronds. And he doesn't enter Jerusalem in order to sit on a throne, even though that's probably what everyone else is thinking. Here he is. Here's the Messiah. He does not come to sit on a throne, but to hang on a cross. I don't know how much more polar opposite you could get than that. The place of highest honor versus the place of cursing. But here's why he did this. He did not go to sit on a throne because Rome is not the enemy. He went to hang on a cross because Satan, the proud one, he is the enemy, the father of death, the father of lies. Like I mentioned, how do you partner with the enemy? It's pride. And the reality is Jesus is telling the Pharisees here and us today by quoting this version, you have prepared praise, that praise and pride are incompatible. Praise and pride cannot and should not exist in the same mouth. Now, in some ways they do because we are fallen and we are messy and we're still trying to figure things out and I can curse somebody one second and praise the Lord the next second. I get that. You can be thinking about what you want for lunch while you're singing the song. I, I understand that. You can say, if you think this is not the song I would prefer and still sing it, I totally get all of that. And that's okay. 
But as a lifestyle, as a way of, of aligning your life, praise and pride are incompatible. Can you defeat Satan on your own? No. Adam and Eve failed the first time they tried. Satan has a perfect track record against humans. 100% of the time, he wins. And so Jesus is telling us that praise is not just the opposite of pride. You cannot praise the Lord if you are prideful, but that in order to be blessable, image-bearing, royal covenant partners with God, praise is one of your best weapons. Praise is one of the best ways that you fight back the forces of evil in the world and in your own prideful heart. We sing that song, We Praise You, in the verse that let praise be a weapon that silences the enemy. There's something powerful when we worship and when we praise. I think one of the best examples, this is going off my notes, so hold on, be careful. But in the Old Testament, I can't remember which battle it was, but there was a battle where they put all of the worshipers in the front. They put the choir in the front, and it's not because the swordsmen were scared. It's because the Lord was going before them. And so the trumpets and the cymbals and the singers, the directors, all of them were in front of the entire army as they went into battle and they came over the crest of the hill and the entire army was already defeated. And I don't think that's just because God had already done it because he was going to do it anyway. I think their obedience also let that happen. I think their praise, they saw, the Lord saw them and said, you know what? Yeah. They're, they're partnering with me. I'm going to make sure this happens for them. Let's make this happen. That is not a good strategy according to any West Point professor. Do not put the musicians in the front. And yet, that's what God does. That's the way God works. The weakest looking people, the people with no weapons, let's put them in the front. Second thing is this. Romans 12, 16. Just one verse. Paul has just given his masterful explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the end of chapter 11. And then Romans 12 through 16 is that, so what are you going to do about this? How do you live this out? And in verse 16, he says something really important. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This phrase do not, uh, do not be haughty, do not be proudful, prideful, but associate with the lowly. That doesn't just mean uh, interact with them or, or, or be seen with them, that there's an element of that. Um, but another way to translate associate with the lowly is, is give yourself to humble tasks. That's the literal translation. Give yourself to humble tasks. Who do we see do that better than anybody else? Jesus, right? He is the perfect example of what it means to be a blessable, image-bearing, royal covenant partner. Jesus washed his disciples' filthy feet. He touched lepers. He healed blind beggars. And he ultimately died in their place. That's how God is most glorified. That's why he's worthy of our worship more than anything else. And one of the best ways to worship him is by loving and serving as he did, which means you associate with the lowly. It means no person and no task is below you. There is nothing that is, you are not too good for anything or anyone. And it's really, really hard to remember that. In God's kingdom, the underdog ultimately always wins. 
And that's really good news for those of you who know you need him. That's really good news for those of you who are aware of your underdogness. Those who are aware that they are limited, that they are sinful, that they are broken, that they are in need of the saving power of Jesus. But that's offensive to the proud. That's bad news. If you think you can do this on your own. So be people who are humble. Be people who understand that the reason you were created was to be a blessable, image-bearing, royal covenant partner alongside God, fighting back the darkness, stooping down low because Jesus already went as low as you possibly can. You can't go lower than Jesus. He's already been more humiliated than any of you ever could in any circumstance. And so we gratefully partner with him and follow in his footsteps to be the perfect human that he displayed for us and glorify our God and worship our God because he works this way. And take joy in the fact that he works that way. Not just being grumbling or, I wish he didn't work this way, but it's, it's how he does things. So, you know, okay, I'm going to go with it. It's really, 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 how many times do I have to say it? Really, really good news that this is how God works because none of you would be looking forward to eternal life if he worked any other way. That's the reality. Let's worship the Lord together through song. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming down and stooping lower than anyone ever could. Thank you that your kingdom works upside down, that your kingdom is backwards. Thank you that you did not count yourself too worthy to stoop. You did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you humbly laid yourself down to save the underdog, to save the lowly. Lord, rip away our pride. Lord, do not let us for one second think we can do this without you. Bring circumstances in our life that remind us we need you. Don't let us coast, Lord. Let us stay reliant on you. And Lord, let us declare with all of creation that you are majestic, that you are worthy of worship because this is how you operate. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We glorify your name. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me as we close with one final song?